Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Talk Recorded live. Welcome, everyone. This is the Spiral Foundation's live talk, Evening with the Expert. This talk is being recorded and will be available on the TalkShoe website for one week. Participants may download this talk for your own use following the presentation. After that time, the talk will be available for sale on the Spiral Foundation website at www.thespiralfoundation.org. Participants may obtain a certificate for AOTA CEUs by following the instructions in your confirmation email and taking a short test on tonight's talk. This talk is the copyrighted property of the Spiral Foundation and may not be copied or distributed without permission. And tonight's topic in our um, Advances in Autism series is Advances in Understanding Brain Neurochemistry, Gastrointestinal Problems and Mitochondrial Difficulties in Children with ASD. And hello, everyone. I am Dr. Teresa May Benson, and I'm the Executive Director of the Spiral Foundation. And joining us tonight is Dr. Margaret Bowman. And we're very delighted to have Dr. Bowman with us. Um, Dr. Bowman is a distinguished pediatric neurologist and research investigator in the diagnosis and treatment of autism and various neurological disorders in children, adolescents, and adults. Uh, she's now Associate Professor of Anatomy and Laboratory Medicine in the Department of Anatomy and Neurobiology at Boston University School of Medicine. She's been a pioneer in the study and treatment of autism for the past 25 years and is one of the world's foremost physicians in this field. She's highly respected for the outstanding clinical care she provides as well as for her research and teaching in the domain of developmental disorders. Uh, she's the founding and current director of the Autism Research Foundation, TARF, and the Autism Research Consortium, TARC, and the Autism Treatment Foundation, TARF. Um, the Autism Research uh, Consortium and the Autism Treatment Network. Um, she's also the medical director of 3L Place in Somerville, a program for young adults with ASD and the Medical Director of the Children's Services Center at Casa Colina Centers for Rehabilitation in Pomona, California. And Dr. Bowman was awarded the Lifetime Achievement Award by the International Society for Autism Research, and this award is given annually to an individual who's made significant fundamental contributions to research in autism spectrum disorders that have had a lasting impact on the field. So, wow. Um, you've got more things going than I do, and that's saying something. <laughs> so we're very delighted to have Dr. Bowman with us this evening to discuss her research at the Autism Research Foundation. So welcome, Dr. B. Thank you very much, and thanks for having me. It's great to be here. Uh, well, I'm delighted to have you here. Um, Dr. Bowman, you were one of the very first researchers in the 1980s and the 1990s 
um, to conduct cutting-edge studies examining uh, neuroanatomic differences in the brains of individuals with autism. And I actually remember going to one of your very early lectures and being so impressed with the work that you did. And uh, since that time, you've just continued <laughs> to constantly be on the cutting edge of uh, studies related to neurobiology in autism. And uh, you've, your TARF um, organization has just been uh, really at the center of a lot of what uh, you've done. And uh, lately you've been working on, wow, a whole bunch of really interesting studies looking at a variety of aspects um, related to autism. And so tonight I'd like to talk about some of the, the research that you've been doing. Okay. Um, so to start off with, we have so many areas. It's like, where do we start? Um, let's start off with the gastrointestinal problems um, in children with autism. Um, I know that this is something that you started seeing uh, clinically uh, with the children. And uh, so tell me, you know, what, what got you interested in studying this area and, and what have you been finding? Okay, well, um, yes, I, I wish I could, I wish could claim that. I wish I could claim that it was all me, but it's not. Uh, basically, I think a lot of... Hello? Yep. Oh, sugar. Can you, can you hear me? Yep, there you are. Yep. Am I getting an echo? Uh, um, there you go. Okay. Now you won't. Okay. We're good. Okay. Uh, anyway, a lot. My interest in this disorder came from the fact that uh, ladders, which was founded many years ago, was founded as a multidisciplinary, interdisciplinary program whereby we had a number of specialists working together in one site. And frankly, this this was really a, a huge benefit because we all were learned from each other. And one of those, as many of you know, uh, was Dr. Timothy Bowie, who continues to be at the Lurie Center and who's a phenomenal pediatric gastroenterologist. And it was, uh, frankly, uh, a situation where uh, he taught us to recognize the fact that a lot of these kids have associated gastrointestinal problems. I mean, there was an era, as many of you also remember, of the, the leaky gut story out on the West Coast, and, and people mm -hmm. were talking about all kinds of complementary approaches to this sort of thing. But that's not what he's talking about. He, first of all, started talking about the fact that a lot of these kids, whether they're autistic or not, have ordinary garden variety gastrointestinal difficulties that any ch children, adolescent, adult might have. And so we, the trick was, of course, to try to recognize what they are. And part of the challenge is that at least 50% of the autism population are nonverbal. So they're not really able to tell you that they don't feel well or they've got pain. And then, as you as OTs know, a lot of these kids have sensory processing issues, so they can't point to where the problem is. Uh, they don't interpret sensations uh, always accurately. Uh, and so, therefore, the real challenge is how do you recognize uh, an individual on the spectrum who has a potential gastrointestinal problem? And right. what we've kind of devised over the years are really observational things that we've ob observed. So at this point, uh, I think that I, as a clinician, uh, my index of suspicion is pretty high. I think the, the data that's out there right now uh, really doesn't, I think, accurately reflect uh, what the prevalence rates of GI tract issues are in the autism spectrum group. Uh, if you look at some papers, it varies from something like 20% to 80%, and I think it really depends upon who's writing the paper, you know, what, mm. who gets what referrals, and so forth and so on. So 
I, my my hunch is that overall it's being still being underdiagnosed. Uh, I think that that what happens well, first of all, the kids do not uh, kids, and I'm going to use the term kids, but I mean children, adolescents, and adults without having to say all of that. Uh, right. the, the individuals on the spectrum really don't present with the typical symptoms that most gap, average gastroenterologists gastroenterologists would recognize. And that's part of the challenge. Uh, so trying to convince the GI guy that this is important uh, and that really it deserves further workup is is a tough call for a lot of uh, families. And so, and I think also a lot of the gastroenterologists got burned, and I use that term in, in sort of parentheses here, mm-hmm. um, by the the leaky gut story and the fact that they really didn't want to hear about this anymore. This was just, as far as they were concerned, a bunch of baloney and that they weren't going to even go any further. So if some parent showed up in their office, they just kind of, uh, as a group, where they went through a period where they kind of poo-pooed it. I think they're mm-hmm. much more aware of it now, um, largely to the efforts of you know, more publications and so forth. But uh, I don't know whether you want me to go ahead and talk about how we, what our index of suspicion is, but I guess I will anyway. Um, yeah, no, I'd love we, to have you talk about what kind of behaviors and index, uh, indicators okay. you see. Okay, okay. Um, first of all, my index of suspicion is, is pretty high. But anyway, if I see a child who comes in, parent tells me that they've got episodes of aggression, they've got episodes of self-injurious behaviors, uh, they have, they're chewing on non-edibles, and I'll get back to that in a minute. Uh, they are uh, grazers, so they're kids that like to drink, drink or eat things uh, fairly often. Uh, they're kids that uh, pat on their chest. They put pressure on their abdomens. Uh, they can have certainly constipation and diarrhea for sure. They can have sleep disturbances, uh, which probably is related to gastroesophageal reflux disease. So, and frankly, any kid that comes in with a behavior that's new, that's that's really disturbing, whatever, I, they get to the gastroenterologist. I will also tell you that I had a young woman come in uh, probably now about six months ago, and the parents were convinced that she had headaches. And she, she, she's very hypoverbal, but was able to say, head hurts, head hurts, okay? And I said uh-huh. to the parent, I know you're going to think I'm crazy, but I think you need to go see the gastroenterologist. So I sent her up to, to Bowie. And sure enough, she's had gastritis and esophagitis. He, you know, treated her, and we don't hear any head hurts anymore. I think head hurt meant I don't feel well. It doesn't mean right. my head hurts. It means I don't feel well. And another similar scenario, um, I love to tell anecdotes, so I apologize. But another scenario was a, a okay. child that I said on, saw on the West Coast, um, with, who and I was the third neurologist, and the story here was that this was a child with seizures, uh, that he was being seen by a number of neurologists. Uh, they treated him, but he continued to have these seizures, and nobody knew what to do. And so about two-thirds of the visit, the mother uh, volunteers that she happens to have a video of one of these episodes on her cell phone, and so she shows me the video, and I looked at it, and I said, this isn't seizure, this is GI. And the kid was sort of crumped up, very clearly looked like he was in, doubling over in pain. You know, it, it clearly was not seizure. So fortunately on the West Coast, I have somebody I can refer to now. So I called this person up. They happen to have a cancellation. The kid gets in there, he gets scoped. Uh, the following week, I get back to Boston and I get an email that says esophagitis, good call. I mean, the kid, <laughs> okay, clearly yeah. got treated for a seizure disorder he didn't have. 
because wow. nobody recognized what he did have. And I think, you know, frankly, I think when some of these kids have some of these behaviors, if we, if you know, everybody's got a cell phone now, everybody can kind of, you know, get a little snippet video of something. Mm-hmm. It's always well worth to getting a video. I want to get back quickly to the um, issue of the chewing on non-edibles. Bowie's right. hypothesis about this, I think, is that you know you guys as as OTs uh, think about this as being texture, and kids need to have deep pressure and so forth. I think there's a lot to that, but there's also the piece that I think he is part of it is that if the kids have um, irritation in their esophagus, that by chewing on things or grazing, they're creating saliva, and the saliva mm-hmm. then soothes the esophagus, which then is sort of a signal that they're not they're not, not terribly comfortable. The other part of it is that the kids have trouble with sleep onset. As soon as they they lie down, the gas you know the gastric fluids with their acids slithers up the esophagus and wakes them up and or doesn't allow them to go to sleep and they're really uncomfortable. So any kid that's got trouble with sleep onset uh, is a, is a red flag for me as well. So I think there are a lot of signals, okay. but they're not the typical signals that most GI people would recognize. Well, I think those are really important for us as OTs in particular to hear because so many of these behaviors are things that we attribute to SI issues um, or, you know, other kinds of, of problems. And, um, you know, we don't, like you said, we, you, we wouldn't immediately think a, a possible GI problem. Now, mm-hmm. do you tend to see these things being fairly chronic or are they, do they tend to be more sort of... Um, recent onset? Um, it varies. It comes and goes. So it could be kids who have had colic as, colic as infants and they got treated and then now they're seven, eight years old and now it's coming back. It could be a child that was uh, diagnosed by someone and then was treated and, you know, was doing pretty well and then it comes back. And Or it could, something else could crop up. I mean, he, might, he or she might be treated for reflux and then the next thing you know, they've got you know, ulcers in in their stomach or something. I mean, we've mm. seen all kinds of strange things happen. And I, you know, I, I ran a, a think tank this past weekend, the Autism Research Consortium that you mentioned, uh, yeah. was started in 1996 with the idea that what we've tried to do is to bring uh, researchers and now clinicians as well uh, who come from different disciplines. So we had GI people and we had a, an immunologist and a biochemist and an anatomist and blah, 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 all of these people together in the same room. And it really is now becoming much more apparent that, that GI issues are, are really kind of a big area of interest right now. Uh, people are beginning to look at what's called the microbiome, which has to do with the bacteria that's involved in the gut and what role that may have in terms of, uh, you know, gut motility, for example, and, uh, you know, just not only how kids feel, but maybe even some of the biochemistry. And by the way, it's worth mentioning that serotonin, which is a big neurotransmitter that uh, you know, is is been highlighted in autism for many years is generated in the gut, so that there uh-huh. there are neurotransmitter systems that are connecting both the brain and the gut. So there's no reason why, you know, there shouldn't be some interconnection between these these organ systems. There's an excellent book, by the way, I'll just throw out because I didn't write it, uh, by a Great. guy named Michael Gershon, G E R S H O N. Michael is a um, researcher at Columbia in New York. 
uh, who has been very interested in the gastrointestinal tract for many years. And this book was on the New York bestseller years, believe it or not, for a number of years. Oh, wow. But basically, it's called The Second Brain, and it basically talks about the gastrointestinal tract uh, and and sort of the neurological issues that go with it and, and how it might impact on you know just general health. It's really kind of an interesting book, and it's a very easy read if anybody just was looking for something fun to do. It's kind of cool. Oh, excellent. So what kinds of treatments have they found helpful for this kind of stuff? Well, it depends upon what it is, and I'm not the gastroenterologist. I mean, first of all, I think the clue here is to refer the kids to a gastroenterologist who gets it. Okay, so I'm, as you probably know, I'm very picky about who I refer kids to. Mm-hmm. So it's got to be somebody who, who knows what that to, knows that this is going to be a tough issue and they're going to have to really look for it and who's going to be willing to do an endoscopy or a colonoscopy and not just sort of poo-poo or just do some x-rays or something like that. So it really is going mm-hmm. to have to be somebody, and, and there is a handful of them in the Boston area happily. Uh, but there are also still some people who don't kind of get it. So I, do, I make the referral, and then I, you know, Bowie or Harlan Winter or one of those individuals, uh, you know, ends up treating the kids. And usually it's, you know, it can be Miralax for gas uh, constipation. I, I mm-hmm. begin to, you know, nex- I've seen Nexium, I've seen Prevacid, I've seen, um, uh, I can't even remember, Pepsid. I've seen a whole mm-hmm. variety, and some drugs that I don't even recognize. But, I mean, there are a number okay. of things that you can do. Uh, sometimes they'll use a gluten-free diet, uh, but not always. And uh, some of the kids do have celiac disease. Uh, a few have Crohn's disease. Um, some of them have irritable bowel syndrome. So it really kind of depends upon what okay. the diagnosis is as to what gets treated. Okay. Yeah, I uh, was just kind of wondering um, what kinds of things you've seen in the way of treatments just um, so that we have an idea for parents about what they might possibly be getting into. You yeah. know what I mean? Um, sometimes. Well, I don't, I, Go ahead. Go ahead. Oh, okay. So, you know, parents parents are like, well, you know, if I go do this, what are they going to do? What should I expect? And it's like at least we can say, well, you know, it's going to be highly variable, but it might be pharmacological mm-hmm. um, management. Uh, you know, it might be dietary management that kind of thing. And yeah. that's very helpful. I think usually what happens <clears throat> is that they, they, they t- typically try to treat with, I mean, they make a sort of a judgment call as to what they think the problem is, and they try to treat medically first. But I think in follow-up, then if it's if the medication or whatever it is doesn't seem to be doing the job, they'll go ahead and scope. So I think that parents do need to be prepared for the fact that uh, their their child may ha- need to undergo a procedure. And I think most parents, of course, don't really want to have their kid go under anesthesia if they can avoid it. But uh, right. You know, honestly, you get to a situation where you literally have to go down there and look and see what's really going on. So it is what it is. Right. right. And now, the secret, um, and the, can I make one more comment? The secret is no, go ahead. they need to. The kids need to be scoped in a place that has very good pediatric anesthesia. So places, I mean, Newton Wellesley does a great job. Mass General does a good job. Children's does a good job. I mean, they're all places that have really strong pediatric anesthesia programs. So, I mean, I wouldn't want to have my child done in, you know, the outpost of nowhere. I'd really want to be in a fairly good, sizable, good medical center to already have them st- have this done. Okay. Now, have you made any connections in other parts of the country other than Boston and, and um, California 
because um, we do get listeners from all over the U.S., and I'm sure we all, we're going to get phone calls later on or emails later on potentially from people sure. asking about sure. possibilities in their area. Do you have is, is there a referral list, or could I get something from you? Well, I wish there was such a magic list. Uh, I guess that one of the best things that that we could offer. Well, first of all, yes, I know a lot of people, um, and so I you know I don't. I get this question a lot, and so I'm I'm happy to make whatever connections I can or help people find what they need to find. Uh, okay. There's also something that's called the Autism Treatment Network, the ATN, and this was actually started using ladders as the model, and it was started by two, about 2003, and it's now under the administration of Autism Speaks. But the gist of it was that they, uh, the, the, we wanted to start multidisciplinary clinics throughout the United States and in Canada, whereby uh, kids would have closer availability to this multidisciplinary approach. And there are now mm-hmm. about 14 sites uh, throughout the United States. So there's okay. you know one in Cincinnati, there's uh, one in Arkansas, there's you know you, uh, you know they're they're around. Uh, so it may not be you know right next to where somebody lives, but I think there are things that are reasonably close uh, that we could try to help. And I could certainly give you the list of the people who are involved in the ATN because all of them okay, are great. supposed to have gastroenterologists who are involved. Okay, awesome. So the, that's great information on that. Um, the next thing I wanted to talk about, um, which I'm sure is related in some ways, is this uh, work that you're doing on the neurochemistry. Um, around estrogen and the sex hormones. Um, and I'm wondering what you can tell us about that. I was found a few little things online there about it, and it sounds really fascinating. Okay, well, there, there, there's sort of two sides to this story. One is a clinical <clears throat> side, and one is a more research, researchy side. So let me talk about the clinical side first, and then I'll go to the, the researchy side, if that's okay. Okay, and they're not, they're not And they're not necessarily totally related at this point. Anyway, the okay. clinical side, it got back to the behaviors, and there were frequent times when parents would come in and tell us about their daughter who going through adolescence. I mean, everybody seems to believe that when you're going through adolescence, your behaviors are going to get worse. That's not necessarily true, but occasionally it happens. But anyway, parents will come in and say, you know, I can always tell my daughter is about to have her period or she's at mid-cycle or whatever, uh, and her behaviors go off the wall, and, you know, it's just, impossible. And then for about a week after she's had her period, we're fine. And then when the whole thing starts all over again. Anyway, um, as I know you're aware, I've referred a lot of these girls to a neuroendocrinologist. That's somebody who's got a background in both neurology and endocrinology. And it's a rare specialty, but happily we have at least one person in the Boston area who does that, who I'm sure in his wildest dreams never thought he would see kids with autism. But in any case, (laughs) uh, anyway, uh, long story short, he evaluated a lot of these girls and found out that they had imbalances between their estrogen and progesterone. They, he then, depends upon what the balance is, rebalances them, you know, either probably providing them with the progesterone. It's usually progesterone that's off. And mm-hmm. these parents think this guy walks on water because the behaviors go. I think, you know, I don't know whether this is premenstrual syndrome or just what this is or, you know, cramps or, or whatever. But whatever happens that this guy does solves the problem of the behavior. So, it, again, it gets back to if say, your daughter or your son is having some episodic behaviors of some kind, can, is there an underlying medical reason why that's happening? This isn't just part of their autism. This is something that, that 
you know, you can diagnose and treat and things will be much better and the quality of life will be better and so forth. So that's one area that I'm particularly interested in at the clinical level is, um, is there something hormonal that we really need to begin to, to recognize? We've tried to look at boys. We haven't been fairly successful at that. Uh, but I think the girl thing with the menstrual periods is, is real. And I think it's something that deserves, again, to be recognized. Uh, from the from the researchy perspective, there's been this interest in the fact that uh, first of all, there are more boys than girls uh, who have been diagnosed with autism, uh, mm-hmm. and so there's a, a concept that maybe there's something about estrogen that's neuroprotective, uh, and so people have gotten very interested in that. And we had a study that we were doing in conjunction with a group in. Uh, Rome, we started to do it, it's still ongoing, and I think other people are also looking at this as well, where they had a mouse model whereby the female mice didn't lose their Purkinje cells. Purkinje cells are your primary inhibitory neurons in the cerebellum. And mm-hmm. there's been recognized in the autistic brain that there is a reduction in the number of Purkinje cells uh, in most autistic brains in certain aspects of the of the cerebellum. So anyway, they had a mouse model where the the males lost, at least there was a markedly reduced amount of Purkinje cells in the cerebellum, but the females didn't have it. So we started looking at our male-females population. And frankly, we haven't kind of taken it all the way that we need to take it yet, but there is sort of a trend, at least in our own data, early data, to suggest that that may well in fact be true. Uh, but I think that there's a lot more to this story that and uh, that people are going to have to really look at. But there's there's great interest right now about whether somehow um, estrogen is neuroprotective in some aspects in terms of developing, and that's why there may be more boys than girls. Wow. Now, um, I was also reading um, some of the work that, that you've done. Um, they were with um, primates looking at the maternal IgG antibodies, I don't um, think that's no. You know what? You you found the work. That's not mine. That happens to be uh-huh. a, a lady named Melissa Bowman. Ah, <laughs> so it comes across another as M. M. Bowman. Bowman. Yes, and she's at UC Davis, and we. I have to laugh about that because uh, <laughs> I get to read her grants sometimes. Uh, but yeah, they've been done doing some beautiful work out there, uh, looking particularly at autoimmune and immune factors. And yeah. they, yes, that's exactly right. And she's been working with a lady named Judy Vanderwater, who is the immunologist out there at UC Davis. Oh, and what they've done is they've taken uh, you know blood samples from mothers who have had kids with autism and found out that the the mother have these um, predisposing autoimmune and immune factors, and there's some idea that this then leads the, the fetus to be to develop differently, and this causes the problem. And what they've done is take those blood samples and inject them into non-human primate pregnant moms, and then see okay. what happens to the the babies afterwards. And what they've come up with is. Uh, some pretty dramatic, um, mostly repetitive stereotypic behaviors and some social mm-hmm. skills kinds of things. I mean, I'm not sure, you and I have had this conversation before, how you recognize autism in an autism primate. Uh, right. Particularly <laughs> since, since, uh, since eye contact is considered aggressive in the non-human primates, so you can't use eye contact as a as a problem, right. and, you, and they don't have words or language that we're aware of, so you can't use that either. But certainly some of the behaviors look very reminiscent of some of the things that we see on the autism spectrum. So, yes, UC Davis is, that's. I wish I could claim that, but it's not my work. Um, oh, okay. It's, it's 
it's fascinating work, and I'm, I fully applaud what they're doing. I think they've got a, a real lead on a at least a subset of kids on the spectrum that may be coming to this disorder through the um, immune autoimmune pathway. Pathway, yeah. Well, it's clear that the you know autism's not just any one thing. You know that there's just so much heterogeneity in what's going right. on with potentially causing any particular manifestation. Right. Um, it's, it's just fascinating to kind of see what all the pieces are. I mean, um, there was another study looking at uh, creatinine deficiencies. Mm-hmm. That's right. Um, yeah. And questioning what was going on with that, right? Yes. Was that yours and or was that hers? <laughs> no, that was mine. I've always said I was part of that one. Uh, and basically, I don't think we really found anything that was pretty, particularly dramatic, uh, at least in the population that we all looked at. Um, this was a uh, study that was done between uh, some of us in the United States and a group in Canada. Uh, okay. and, uh, but we didn't find anything that was really dramatic. That said, it doesn't mean it couldn't happen in a small subset. It, I mean, I just don't think it's a it's a huge subset. But I think there's a huge uh, push now to try to define subsets in this disorder so that we can try to make sense out of some of this. I think up to this mm-hmm. point, the whole field has just kind of been thrown into a gamish. And when the DSM-5 came out, I think some of us were horrified, frankly, because, you know, here science is basically sort of leading the path of saying, okay, we need to be to define subgroups of these folks. And then you leave mm-hmm. the DSM-5 and then put them all together in the autism spectrum label. So there's no longer, you right. know, Asperger's or PDD or anything else. It, you know, you're all part of this one big happy family kind of thing, only you're mild, moderate, and severe. And it's, it's right. really, you know, impacted not only clinical research, but also bench science research a lot. Because how do you define right. your populations is, is sort of a challenge. Well, it's a lot so, harder. And I I think, um, I mean, I would imagine you would see the same thing, that uh, individuals that they consider to be Asperger's are quite different kids absolutely. Um, in many cases than, than your, your classic ASD kids. Absolutely. Um, really yeah, different. I, now, yeah. Uh, another area I, I just wanted to touch base with, because particularly since you men- mentioned it, was um, there's been some research lately about the uh, serotonin, uh, ser- serotonin system yep. and how that relates to emotion and um, the impact of the 5-HT system on ASD. Do you know anything yep. about that? Well, it's not really my area of expertise. I think uh, we had a, a part of our think tank was a, a guy from Columbia who did do a presentation on that. And I think there was a period of time where people were very interested in serotonin, and then they discovered that most of the serotonin was housed in the platelets, uh, in Mm -hmm. the blood rather than, you know, circulating around in other ways. They've now, I think, come up with an idea about how this... This may have that it's kind of stored in the platelets, but it doesn't mean that's the only place it is. And I think we're again back to thinking about the relationship between the gut and the brain and what roles the serotonin system plays in that. But I think Mm -hmm. it's it's an evolving system, and I'm not sure that I'm frankly up to date enough on it to be intelligent. So it it is definitely sort of revived. Um, there was a period of time where, you know, people just said, oh, well, it's in the platelets, it can't be that important. But I think now it's been revived again. And I, you know, but there are other, you know, there are other neurotransmitters that people are interested in. The acetylcholine system, of course, and the dopamine system has gotten a little more play right now. People are more interested in that because, as some of you may see, some of these kids who develop what I guess some of us are calling catatonia. I don't know whether you guys have seen any of that. Mm, no, I haven't some, seen that. Yeah. Okay. Well, basically, the, my 
my sample, I guess, has been mostly boys. It's been mostly teens. It's sort of mid to late teens. And suddenly, for no obvious reason, they start getting stuck. I mean, I don't know any other way to describe it. It's this real look like they have trouble with initiation, uh, you know, getting over a doorstop, uh, eating, just things that were automatic for them. And they don't have the symptoms that you associate with Parkinson's disease and know there's no cognitive really rigidity or any of that stuff, but they have this stuckness, this real problem with initiation. So the the whole people are now getting much more interested in in the dopamine system and whether or not that somehow this subset of kids uh, have some some problem with that neurotransmitter. So, you know, honestly, uh, I go to a meeting and I feel like this this whole story gets progressively more complicated. <laughs> right. I, I think the more we learn about it, um, it is more complicated. And as you pointed out, it's not a one size fits all anything. It's each kid really has to be treated as an individual and that makes it extremely challenging. Right. Well, I'm, I'm interested in the dopamine acetylcholine situation because I have one of those adults oh, really? um, that I've been working with for 20 years now. Um, wow. And I've not really heard of that many other – he's got that sort of pseudo-Parkinson's kind of really? looking stuff. Really? Yep. Yep. Wow. I'll be happy to chat with you someday. Yeah, okay. Um, but he, it's it's exactly what you're talking about. It's it's like a movement disorder. Yeah. Um is how it manifests is that difficulty initiating action yeah. sometimes yeah. and then sort of repeating and kind of getting stuck in an action. Um yeah. some of that postural rigidity right. um kind of coming into play, but I've not heard anybody else really talk about um seeing kids like that in like years. So it's kind of, it's very interesting to me that you've been seeing more of those kids. Yeah. Well, um, there's, there are a number of people who have written about, there's a, a, one of the first people who wrote about this was a lady named Lorna Wing, uh, who's, yeah. uh, I think she was a psychiatrist out of uh, England. And then in yep. this country, uh, Ricky Robinson, who's on the, who's a developmental pediatrician on the West Coast, also has written a lot about it. So there, there is some literature about it. I don't think most people understand it. Uh, we don't mm-hmm. certainly understand the biology of it right now. Uh, but it, you know, it's not that. I mean, it's it's people are becoming more aware of it. I guess is what I'm I'm saying. And I don't yeah. know that we all know, well, know my, what what it's my about. My clients saw Ralph Moore. I'm sorry. Oh yeah. My, oh really? Yeah. Yeah, oh my and Ralph Moore was one of the first people who really yeah, picked sure. it up with him yeah, in the, right, in the early. That. Yeah, and he's yeah, yeah. Um, he just turns just turns sixty or is almost wow. sixty. Wow, he must be like one of the uh, older ones. Yeah, yeah, huh. and and um, he uh, he I would say probably started manifesting that in his early twenties. Is he seeing a movement specialist here in Boston, or is, I'm assuming he's a Boston-based person? Is he seeing yeah. anybody? Um, he is, and I can't remember the name of the doctor. He just retired not too long ago. Okay, there's a really good um, guy at Beth Israel that I've started sending some of these kids to. Uh, that oh, I'll yeah? Be glad to, yeah, that I'll be glad to share with you. All right, I'll check with you on that. Yeah. Um, but uh, anyways, it's it's great to kind of see that stuff coming up. Yep. Um, which I guess leads us to one of the next things I wanted to talk a little bit more about, because I, I think the neurochemistry piece is just 
fascinating, and you've got your fingers in so many toes, uh, so well, many ties. What was interesting was that this last weekend, as I said, when we had this think tank, uh, I think you know people were there were a lot of geneticists there. You know, people are now saying, you know, okay, we've identified some of these candidate genes. What do they really mean? And so people are beginning to look about, you know, systems. What systems in the brain might be affected by this? So I mean, the whole thing is just, you know, it's, it's very exciting. It really is evolving. It's still a heck of a lot of questions but it's very, very exciting. Sorry, go yeah. ahead. Well, I was going to um, say I wanted to talk a little bit about the mitochondrial disorders because okay. that, um, from what I understand, I mean, one of the things that that um, particular disorder is suggesting is potentially some genetic things in some groups. Is that correct? Yeah, I think that probably, well, yeah, well, I think that, again, this is <laughs> complicated as well. Uh, I think that this is probably a subset of kids again, uh, and I think that the question is whether or not mitochondrial disorders, uh, as it relates to autism, is it causative, is it associated with, or is it a result of? And I don't think anybody really knows that, and it's a fairly new concept of that being maybe the last five to seven years, possibly, mm-hmm. maybe a little earlier than that. Uh, so I think people are getting a little, again, more savvy about it. Um, as some of you know, mitochondria are the uh, inner engines for every cell in your body. Uh, mm-hmm. So a lot of these kids will present uh, with easy fatigability, certainly low muscle tone. Oftentimes they're delayed walkers. Um, they are kids. I got into this because I started seeing well, it started with one young man who's now in his early 20s. And I don't remember how old he was when I started, maybe about 12. But he was in a dynamite program, 40 hours a week, you know, his great parents doing all the everything, and he was going nowhere. I mean, this was mm-hmm. like this plateau. And I remembered from my my medical, medical school career, basically, that what I was taught mm-hmm. that, you know, people with developmental disabilities, whatever that may be, usually make progress. They may make it on their own trajectory, but, you know, it's they're moving along, okay, at some right. level. Uh, if, in fact, it's plateauing and they're not going where, that means that something has to be working against you. It's working against the developmental trajectory. So I went to my now buddy, Dr. Marvin Natovich, who is a uh, who was then at the, he's a medical geneticist who was working up at, was, was then the Shriver Center in Waltham. And he had a lab up there. And I went to see Marvin and I said, told him the story about this kid. And I said, you know, I really think we need to, to work this kid up. I think he's got some kind of medical problem or me- metabolic problem or something. And Marvin blithely said, well, you know, I don't know anything about autism and I'm too busy. And I said, well, couldn't you, couldn't you just do this one? <laughs> So, anyway, Uh-oh, long, that's how you get long, them, Margaret. Yes, exactly. So, so a long story short, the kid turned out to have a complex one mitochondrial disorder, and needless to say, Marvin is now at the Cleveland Clinic Foundation, heading a very large autism program. <laughs> <laughs> so, 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 so life goes on. But anyway, so we, so one of our red flags, uh, you know, clinical red flags, is kids in a great program making no progress. Why aren't they? Well. I think because you know they've got mitochondrial disorders and it's it's impeding their progress. The other thing is that, you know along with the poor physical endurance, the other thing I hear about is repeated regressions. I mean we're used to hearing 
uh, mm. kids who are, you know, two and a half or, you know, they were doing fine until about a year and a half to two years and then they regressed. This is kids who are six, seven years of age who are doing this five times a year. I mean, they mm. go through these, you know, this is not autism. This is something else. So that's one of our red flags. Another is, is kids who get sick and when they get sick, they get sicker than other kids or they have a really long pro- you know, recovery period. I had one family who told me that they practically lived in the emergency room because they were constantly taking this kid back and forth to the emergency room all the time. And then once we, we diagnosed the problem when we put him on our what we call our vitamin cocktail, they haven't seen an emergency room since. Uh so wow. you know, it, it yeah, so it it really it is a real thing. I don't think the you know the problem the, there are many problems with it. First of all that it, we don't have any foolproof way of making a certain diagnosis. Um, we, we run a series of lab studies which involve blood and urine samples, but you can have, still have the disorder and still have pretty normal-looking labs. And it's, you know, we try our best to try to get those labs in a variety of metabolic conditions, but it doesn't always come up that way. And so, mm-hmm. frankly, I've gotten to the point of where I really feel like if I really feel it's a reasonable possibility, I will generally... Uh, put the kid, give them a three-month trial on the cocktail, uh, mm-hmm. and, and see what, and what, see is, what, what do they take usually? Is, well, is it usually, like a vitamin? Yeah, it, it is. It's, and you know, I usually have it compounded by a compounding pharmacist, and I'll tell you why I do that in a minute. But, uh, mm-hmm. but it's enclosed co, co, coenzyme Q10, vitamin E, vitamin C, vitamin B1, riboflavin phosphate, and alpha lipoic acid. And then there's a second uh, script for for carnitine. And the reason that I have it compounded is that these products, uh, as you're aware, are sold as food products. They're not sold mm-hmm. as drugs, and so there's no FDA oversight. So you right. don't, if you go to the Whole Foods or you go wherever you go and you buy vitamin C or CoQ10 or whatever you buy, and it says it's got 50 milligrams in it, you don't know whether it's got 50 milligrams in it or not. And you also don't know right. what the medium is, or the other stuff that's in the same pill. And if I want 50 milligrams and I want pure garden variety whatever, I want to be sure that the kid's getting what I want them to get. And furthermore, right. you've got a situation where you've got a lot of kids who don't, take pills or don't right. uh, swallow things very well, and now you're going to try to give them six different vitamins. I mean, that's not going right. to work. So, can, the, can they do it in a liquid? Yeah, they can make it up in a liquid. They can make it up in a capsule. Sometimes you can open up the capsules and put it in a teaspoon of yogurt or applesauce or something like that. And, and the kids mm-hmm. generally take it. Riboflavin phosphate is sort of a version of uh, vitamin B2. And when I, we first started, we were doing B2 straight out, but it tastes and smells terrible, and the kids just won't take it. So we switched it over to the, the riboflavin phosphate, and it seems a little bit more palatable to the kids. At least they seem to tolerate it better. Um, wow. I have to say, I do feel like over the years, I've seen a number of uh, just what I would consider to be SI kids that yep. are these low-tone kids, don't make progress, um, you know, no matter how much input you give them, you're not really changing that muscle tone all yep. that much, and they're probably these mitochondrial kids. They may well be, and I think a lot, you know, one of the things that we typically see uh, using our 
cocktail is that their physical endurance improves. I would, you know, where they're not going to play for the Patriots or anything, but they, you know, they definitely got a lot more energy and and last longer. And if they, a lot of them will sleep better. I think, you know, in very strange ways, sometimes they, we have kids who are very anxious, and there could be a bazillion reason why that is. But some of the anxiety improves. We've had some kids who who've, whose language seems to improve. They're not proficient talkers, but they seem to have a little more language. I, I don't mm-hmm. know. I mean, it, it varies from child to child as to what changes you see. There are many different kinds of mitochondrial disorders that are out there. So, you know, we may not hit them all. We tre- we've treated, treated some kids that just have had no response at all. Does that mean we're wrong? I don't know. We may not have the right cocktail. But, you know, again, this is an evolving field, and I don't know that there's a lot of research on it right now. We're trying uh-huh. to get uh, one of the, the things that's come up recently, which is driving me nuts, and I don't think I'm the only one that's being driven nuts, is that certain numbers of the insurance companies now are refusing to pay for the cocktail. Uh, even though uh, I've had kids on this for yeah. you know four or five years, suddenly the insurance company says, well, we're not paying for it. And I think part of it is that the the coenzyme Q10 is very expensive. And mm-hmm. uh, frankly, my view on this is it's probably more expensive not to treat the kid because you're going to have to in the emergency room yeah. or in a hospital somewhere. But you know, yeah. trying to convince them that they need to pay for this is is driving everybody batty. And the number of letters of medical necessity that some of us have to keep writing for this is just outrageous. I mean, it's it's. I don't understand it. I mean, I've gone as far as to to write the letter that says, you know, if you don't do this, this is bordering on malpractice. It hasn't got me very far, but it, I mean, to me, it is. I don't think. Wow. This is, I mean, I've had kids where the, you know the parents haven't been able to get the cocktail because they couldn't. The insurance didn't pay for it, and the kid's gone down the tubes. I mean, he's lost his uh-huh. language. I mean, it, it's not like we made this up. Uh, you know, right. and there's. There's good literature literature to support it, but boy, I'll tell you, those insurance companies, and it's not every insurance company, but there's certain ones that are really son of a gun. So right. Well, with- and I know I know there's been uh, kind of a recent movement with some of the insurance companies to really question compounded medicines. Yes. Um, as well, yeah. Um, I take a compounded medicine, and um, they don't cover it. The right. insurance company just won't cover it now because it's a compound. And, and I don't, so, I don't understand that at all. I mean, I, I don't. I mean, yeah, I, I don't get it. I mean, why, is, why are they doing that? I, I just, I think it's, a, I think it's a money thing, and I think, yeah, probably. I don't, I don't think it's appropriate. So with, um, with the the mitochondrial uh, stuff, um, I know that I, I wanted to kind of get into just a little bit more about what, uh, what you know about some of the genetic pieces. Mm-hmm. Um, because I know that that's um, kind of something that's always of interest to parents in particular um, mm-hmm. is what do they know about the genetics. And I know the mito- uh, certain types of the mitochondrial dysfunction um, are related to genetics and others aren't. Um, and just in general, what, do you, what can you tell us about that sort of uh, area? Okay, <laughs> well, well you can run genetic studies for for mitochondrial disorders but honestly they are not always i frankly stopped doing it because it doesn't mm-hmm. come up the way it doesn't it's not a reliable answer the the best way to diagnose a mitochondrial disorder frankly is on the basis of a muscle biopsy and you have to be careful okay. where you get the muscle biopsies done because uh i've had a several false positive sorry false negatives that have come out of boston and I think it largely it's because of how the the muscle tissues are prepared. 
the best way to excuse me to do it is through what's called a fresh muscle biopsy, whereby they they biopsy it and then they process it immediately rather than freezing it or something of that sort. And the uh-huh. two places, so I often will send kids, frankly, out to Cleveland or to Atlanta, where the two places that I can think of getting those biopsies. Um, I mean, I don't, I haven't found a place in Boston yet that I've been happy with. The the uh-huh. lab studies that we do, and this, that includes the the genetic testing really, I think, are not uniformly reliable. And as I said earlier, there's no foolproof test for mitochondrial disorders. Skipping over the mitochondrial issues in terms of genetics, uh, it's now clear that there's well over 100 genes that seem to be risk factors for autism. I think one wow. of the big problems are, there are many big problems, but one of the big problems is that, okay, we define this as being a, a 15Q whatever or a uh, 16p, what have you on the 16th chromosome, but nobody really has a good handle as to what those kids look like relative to other kids uh, phenotypically. That is, in terms of their mm-hmm. presentation, you know, right? How, you know, so we're we're still pretty much shooting in the dark. Um, but now that there are these things called genome microarrays, where you can get a much broad broader spectrum of of uh, genetic patterns. Sometimes those come up negative. Many times they come up negative. That doesn't necessarily mean that there isn't a genetic component still. We just haven't been able to fix it yet or find it yet. Then there's something that's called exome sequencing, which is much more expensive. And this is done in a select number of academic facilities now in the United States. I think it's getting more common, but enormously expensive. And it's almost where you can almost look at almost every gene that anybody even has. And some of the places now are asking families to sort of specify what genes they really want to know about. So, for example, wow. do you want to know that you're going to have Alzheimer's disease when you're 45, or would you rather <laughs> not know that? Okay. I mean, there it's really it's, it's getting to that point uh, where you're going to find out a lot more than maybe you bargained for on right. uh, some of these genetic studies. So what do you really want to know? And oftentimes, wow. for example, they'll find something in the child but then they have to go, and they don't know whether it's significant or not. So then what they need right. to do is to get samples on both parents. And if the parent has the same gene as the child, but the parent obviously isn't autistic, uh, then this is probably not a significant problem. If, on the other hand, neither parent has the variant of whatever this is, then whatever they found in the child probably is significant. But again, there's a lot, still a lot of iffy stuff that's going on. But genetics is a, it, I mean, there's a lot of money that's been put in genetics, and I think that they, they're getting closer. Um, and there are a lot of good sites here in the Boston area for people to get some good genetic studies. I think Children's Quite Honestly is one of my favorites. Uh, mm-hmm. There's a really good geneticist over there where uh, people can get a very good evaluation and workup. And, and what I frequently say to families is even if you get your genetic assessment this year, probably is worth you know checking in with the geneticist in another year or two because the technology is changing so rapidly that you know wow. the tests we can't do this year we probably can do two years from now and we might have a totally different picture or answer so just because wow. you had it done when you were three doesn't mean right. that you've solved the problem you, you know take another look it's worth right. it's worth it wow um that's fascinating um stuff there's just so much um coming up you know, it that is. I think that we're learning. Um, the last thing I wanted to talk a little bit about, um, 
is uh, the comorbidities in autism. Mm -hmm. Um, And I am just going to refer people uh, just as an overarching paper. You wrote just recently this lovely paper on medical comorbidities in autism, uh, challenges to diagnosis and treatment, and neurotherapeutics. Mm -hmm. Um, That's right. And that just came out uh, this year, did it not? I think it did, yeah. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, so that's that's a great resource for people. And so what can you tell us about sort of the medical comorbidities that we as, as therapists should know about? What are some well, of the areas that are well, involved? Well, honestly, and... it's probably anything that any other kid could have. Okay, so, uh, <laughs> well, that's that's true. And, uh, you know, certainly seizures, everybody talks about seizures, and about one-third of the autism population probably is either has seizures or they're going to have seizures at some point during their lifetime. Uh, part of the the think tank thing, story came out yesterday, though that there there some of the you didn't hear this from me. Uh, well, no, okay. I probably shouldn't discuss it. Anyway, the, the seizures <laughs> are still continue continue to be an area of interest. Um, the other is sleep distorted the sleep disorders uh, are huge, and it's not you know a lot of people assume that that's just behavioral. Uh, may not be behavioral. It may be that you know we talked a little bit about gastroesophageal reflux disease right. as a contributor, but suppose you've got big tonsils and adenoids. I mean that's pretty mm. common uh, in kids. Uh, and if you can't breathe, you can't sleep. You know, and they, you know, so I frequently ask parents, you know, does this child snore? Is he a mouth breather? You know, what's you know what's going on? Yeah, I think he needs to see an ENT person, kind of thing. And I, you know, on the West Coast, I had this one episode where I sent, I, I think I had the kid and he was a mouse bleeder, and I said, you know, you need to see an ENT. So the mother goes, he's the ENT, she comes back. And I said, well, what did Dr. So-and-so say? She says, yeah, he's got big tonsils and adenites. And I said, well, is he going to take him out? Well, no. And I said, well, why not? He said, the answer was because he's autistic. Oh, <laughs> well, that's, no, that's not the right answer. I mean, you know, I don't care whether he's XYZ. I mean, if he's got big tonsils and adenoids, they need to come out. So, right. you know, that's an issue. Sensory processing issues, that you guys know about that better than I do, but, you know, kids who like to um, tie, you know, your weighted blankets story, uh, you know, putting the, you guys have trained me, uh, to put <laughs> the bed next to the wall so the kid can curl up and press against the wall. Uh, yeah. Lycra PJs or something that's sort of tight-fitting often is very helpful, those kinds of things. You know, it, it it's not just a behavioral issue. And I, I, you know, sometimes I guess it can be, but, I, you know, you need to look for something else. And then the right. endocrine issues that we've kind of talked about, uh, you know, kids that kids can have uh, urinary tract problems. I've had children who, for example, uh, you know, have been totally continent and then about not usually it's been nine, ten, or eleven. Uh, they become incontinent, and then somebody says, "Oh, well, something's going on at home. Something's going on at the school." Uh, you know, this has to be a behavioral problem. Well, it turns out that some a subset of those kids turn out to have spastic bladders. I mean, I don't know why they've got spastic mm. bladders, but uh, that's a treatable condition, and I have them evaluated by a urologist. They find out the kids got a spastic bladder, splatter, bladder, can't even talk straight, and mm-hmm. um, you know, you treat it with medication, and you're home free, and the kids continent again, and everybody's happy. So again, it's 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 or looking just at ordinary things that ordinary mm-hmm. kids have. Just because the kid's autistic doesn't mean he doesn't have ordinary things. I think it's more of a challenge right. because the kids can't always tell you where the problem is. Uh, and you're you're like you know Sherlock Holmes. You're going to have to be an investigator. You're going to have to start thinking about all the possible things that you can think of that might be causing problems here. Because it's you know you're going to you're going to trip up it somehow, but it's not going to be obvious. 
So it could be right. almost any of those things. It could be allergies. It could be, you know, who knows? And headaches, I guess. Although I find headaches extremely hard, of course, to diagnose in a nonverbal child. How do you how do you know that exactly? Right. It's a tough one. Well, yeah, I've seen the, the headaches um, a lot over the years, and oftentimes those kids that are head banging or mm-hmm. slapping their heads. Yep. What yep. we've what we've found is they often have cranial sacral issues. Oh, that's right. Uh, which sure. is giving them headaches. And you uh-huh, do the craniosacral okay. therapy, mm-hmm. you alleviate the headaches, and the headbanging stops. Sure. You know, mm-hmm. it's like, yep. okay. <laughs> I'm yep. telling you right where the, where the pain is there. But, sure. yeah, it can be really challenging. Yeah. Ear infections um, are another one, which are ordinary. Um, yep. I don't know. Are we, are we buttoning up, bumping up against the end of time here? Yeah. Or not? Okay. Yeah. Because I'm just about gonna, there. I was just oh, going to give one of my... Give one of my anecdotes about a kid with ear infections, but I'll, I won't at this point since we're running out of time. All right. Well, the last, the very last thing I wanted to ask is, um, do you have any resources therapists can learn about your studies? Is there someplace good for them to go? Um, are there any other articles other than the one I, I well, mentioned that you might want to point people to? Okay. Well, there's a book that's in process. It's coming out. It, it's being published out of England, and it was sponsored by, I think, the Cleveland Clinic Foundation as well as the Autism Research Institute on the West Coast. And it deals largely with um, behaviors. I, I don't know whether it's called self-injurious behaviors or something like that, but basically it's it's an edited book. Uh, and I have a chapter in that, but so do many other people, about uh, what what might be the basis of some of the behaviors that a lot of kids have. And it should be mm. out probably within the next month or two, not even. It's it's really on the verge. Um, but I, w- I would recommend that book. It's got a lot of good chapters in it, and I think it's a, a good thing to take a look at. Do you know who the editor on that book is by any I think chance? It's, I, think it's, I think it's going to be Steve Edelson, E-D-E-L-S-O-N. So E-D-E-L-S-O-N, first name Stephen, and he is currently okay. the director of the Autism Research Institute, and I think he is the editor of the book. Right. Okay. Awesome. Okay. That's great. Um, is there any? Are there any other places? Are you on ResearchGate? Do you have articles on ResearchGate? Yes. 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 I am, but I never look. At it. <laughs> so I'm sure they're on there somewhere. But yes, I am on ResearchGate, and I think you'd probably, I guess, just type in my name, and it'll likely to be there somehow. Um, okay. Yeah. But there are a number. There are a number of papers that we put out that have to do with the comorbidities. Um, yeah. And yes. So that's probably a good okay. place to look at. And some of the okay. other research. I'd let me, can I make one more comment? We've got a yes. study that we've been doing with Doug, uh, the group at Duke that has to do with sensory processing, and I think you and I have talked about this before, uh, in a rodent model. And uh, yes. we found that uh, there are what are called H1 receptors, which are histamine receptors that seem to be involved in this um, disorder in certain selected areas of the brain. And we, there is a paper out on that which is uh, the first author is Skefos, spelled S-K-E-F-O-S. It's Jerry Skefos was a um, grad student in our lab, and that's mm-hmm. probably about a year old, and it talks about um, uh, the sort of neurobiology of what we understand so far uh, on sensory processing problems in, in the brain. Uh, we're now oh, cool. looking at we're looking at GABA receptors now, uh, gamma medium butyric acid, and we'll uh, we'll begin to look at dopamine receptors in the near future. But it's an oh. ongoing process. But we are looking. 
Awesome. Well, that's just fantastic. Um, our time is just about up, um, but I do want to take um, a couple of questions if people have them. Um, if uh, anyone wants to type in a question quickly, I'll be happy to take them. And um, I am going to unmute the few of you who are on the phone. So if you're on a phone, if you can please mute your phone um, using your own mute button um, so we don't get your background noise, um, that would be great. Otherwise, I will unmute you and give you the chance to ask a verbal question if you have verbal questions for Dr. Bowman. Okay, so everybody's open. Any questions out there? You gave us lots of great information to think about. There's just so much fascinating um, research coming out in this area at this point. Hi, may I ask a question? I'm a parent of an ASD child. Sure, sure go ahead. Um, actually, I um, we were trying to get to see doctor. I actually live in Hong Kong, and my son currently we come to Boston twice a year to see doctors. And um, just in November, he was diagnosed with um, inflammation of the gut. Oh yeah. And um, we are we are trying to actually get on Dr. Tim Bowie's schedule for the summer when we're back. But I'd like to know if you have any book resources that we can read more about in terms of GI issues and its relationship with the brain. Uh, not, I don't know that there are any uh, other than the the uh, second brain book that I told you about. Uh, there is a, um, a supplement that came out in a journal called Pediatrics, uh, and I'm trying to remember now how, um, I want to say it was 2010, but I think that's right. Uh, and it, if you look up Bowie on uh, the email or your web or something, it's likely to come out. And he's there. There are a series of papers that they talk about the GI tract in autism. They are not talking about the GI tract as it relates to the brain. And I think that whole story is fairly new. The other person that you potentially could look up is, is Gershon. And I saw Mike Gershon at a meeting in December, and he was talking about it. I don't know if they published anything yet. So this research is sort of a, a new venture that people have really started to look at this in terms of how um, the, the relationship of gut and the brain. But I would take a look and see if Mike Gershon has put anything out because he's likely to be a co-author on that paper, whatever it is. Um, how do you spell okay, Dr. Bowie's so name? Gershon is G-E-R-S-H-O-N, first name Michael. And Dr. Bowie. How and do you both. spell his last yeah. name? Oh, I'm sorry, B-U-I-E. B-U-I-E. Okay, I had it right the first time. Okay, um, we do have someone who wanted to know about your thoughts on pesticides um, and environmental estrogens and that possible relationship with ASD. Yeah, okay. There is a, there is some research that's being done, again, more on the West Coast um, out of the uh, Mind Institute by a lady na named Dr. Hertz Pakoda. And don't ask me how to spell the name, please, because I can't. Uh, and uh, there was also a guy at our meeting over the weekend who's here at Boston at the Harvard School of Public Health. He's talking more about uh, air pollutants uh, and what role that might have. I don't know that, um, you know, I think most people are talking about that there's the way I'm conceptualized or what I'm hearing conceptually is that they that if you're at a genetic risk and then something some environmental factor then um, mm -hmm. um, hits you you're going to be more vulnerable than you would be 
uh, you know, than somebody who doesn't have the same genetic risk. So they're sort of talking about genes and environment coming together uh, in some of these right. cases. There's a lot of interest in it. I wouldn't, you know, um, I don't think that we really have solid data, but the best, certainly in the pesticide story, I would look up Hertz Pakoda, and it's Hertz, H-E-R, like Hertz, rent a car, Hertz Pakoda, and I don't know how to spell the Pakoda part. Uh, but I know that they've been looking. Yeah, yeah, right. And that they have been looking at uh, pesticides and, and um, fertilizer and stuff like that on the farms out there in California. Uh, so that would be the best best potential resource. And and they they've got a large sample of people that they've been looking at. It's it's still a very open topic. I don't know that anybody's got solid answers, but there's some some data suggests that there's some relationships. Okay. And maybe this is related, but um, this will be our last question, and then I'll let you go. Um, one person would like to know what your thoughts are about um, W3 fatty acids in relationship to ASD. Do you know uh, what she's talking about? Actually, I probably don't, so I'm probably not the right person to ask. I don't I don't know that uh, any – I don't know, quite honestly. Okay. Sorry, sorry, I can't answer the question. Sorry about that. All right. Well, I'm going to um, wrap up here then. Um, our time is up, and uh, we'd like to thank you very much for joining us. Um, watch our website and our mailing list for more details. And thank you, Dr. Bowman, so much um, well, for sharing for your me. expertise. Um, thank you. We really appreciate it. I hope it was well. Oh, it was awesome. Um, and thank you very much to our participants for joining us uh, for our live talk, Advances in Autism series. And uh, watch our website at www.thespiralfoundation.org for our next live talk presentation and to obtain copies of past programs. And everybody have a great evening. Thanks a lot. Thank you. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.